Welcome back, everyone, to the RF Factor. This is episode number 24. Tonight, Pete and I will be joined by Dion Joseph. Dion Joseph is a police officer in the Skid Row area of Los Angeles. Uh, I've been following Dion for the last year since we've had this podcast. I've been looking to get him on, and he's got a busy schedule. He's involved in a lot of stuff that we're going to hear about tonight, but He's got just incredible perspective on homelessness and particularly how law enforcement, how not only as a as a problem to engage in, but solutions as well in dealing with the homelessness as it relates to not only a social a condition, but also from a crime perspective. So we're looking forward to uh, talking to him today. Hey, Pete, I'm just going to before. Before we ask Dion to tell us a little bit about himself, I'm going to turn it over to you. How you doing? Good, good. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I actually did a little research on my own on on, on Dion, and uh, I just can't wait. Let's just dive into this because it's going to be it's going to be very valuable for the people that are listening. Okay. Hey, Dion, if you don't mind, can you give us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, how you came to be engaged in in homelessness? Well, my background is I'm a 26-year veteran of law enforcement in Los Angeles area. Uh, I started my career uh, in a wonderful place called Venice Beach. Uh, everybody knows where that is. Basically, uh, beautiful ladies, palm trees, you know, great eating spots. We want to leave there. Uh, but I was on probation. I got kicked out after my probation was up. Uh, became a full-fledged police officer, and I ended up in a place called Skid Row. Uh, and I have worked there for 24 years of my career, minus one year where I went to go work with children in South L.A. Wow. And uh, it, as a police officer, I worked as a basic patrol officer, a uh, training officer, an undercover officer. Uh, working undercover at Skid Row really, really opened my eyes. I got a funny story about that, but uh, about to the reality of what was happening underneath in the underbelly. Uh, and then I came back uh, as a training officer again, and then I became the senior lead officer in charge of the safety of the people of, of Skid Row. And that's been going on for the last 17 years. But on top of that, off-duty. Uh, I, I do public speaking. I do consulting. I go talk to agencies about homelessness, community policing. Uh, you know, I, I'm an author. I wrote a, a book uh, a few years ago, which uh, awesome. surprisingly well, did, did, did okay. And uh, now I just like sharing my thoughts uh, uh, on policing, on homelessness across the country. And the reason why I'm doing it now, I don't want to wait till I retire because things are so bad right now that if I wait another five years, if I don't become one of many amplified voices trying to swing the pendulum back right now in real time, uh, we're going to lose our country as a whole. And that's why I am so outspoken and I, do, I love doing what I do. Wow. Uh, so can I just uh, get a little reference point? I know both of you are very familiar with California uh, living there, but uh, can you give us a little history of Skid Row, where that name actually comes from and, and uh, you know, how it's evolved into what it is today? Well, the term Skid Row came from Seattle, where they had logs, uh, you know, going down chutes. So that that's where the term came from. But uh, hitting the skids, so to speak. Uh, so Skid Row in Los Angeles area, you know, it, it had already, always been around. They started out as little hotels uh, that would house uh, uh, derelicts and alcoholics, uh, you know, and it was one of the first places that had shelters 
okay, shelters for homeless, and it attracted a lot of people's homeless. Uh, and it was funny because the demographic back then it was mostly white males and uh, pretty much a mixture of everybody. But then you fast forward a, a few years later, you have veterans coming home from the Vietnam uh, Korean War. Uh, and of course they didn't get the help that they truly needed. So a lot of them ended up down there and then you had cocaine and heroin, which was uh, uh, pretty uh, frequently used in that area uh, back in the day. And then comes uh, uh, crack cocaine in the 1980s and crack cocaine decimated inner cities across this country. And you saw a demographic shift in Skid Row where it was primarily white Latino guys. Now you're seeing people in the African-American community African-American community uh, come into the area at a high click because they were already at the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, ladder where they were. So when they used crack cocaine, uh, juxtaposed to their uh, more affluent counterparts, they fell faster and they burned bridges, but there was no place for them to go for help. Skid Row was the only show in town because Mayor Tom Bradley, who was a great guy, but misguided in this, uh, he said, hey, we have shelters downtown, bring all your homeless to, to Skid Row. And that's exactly what people did in the city, the county, and also all across the nation. And Skid Row became this containment zone, or for lack of a better term, asylum without walls, where basically it was L.A.'s dirty secret. And, wow. uh, and we kept everybody in. Uh, and if they got out, they got sent back, whether they were sent back through patient dumping or where they were released from prison, they were sent there. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's where we are now. And then you advance a few years later, uh, the drug game becomes more sophisticated because there's drug programs uh, that attract uh, uh, people on the low end for help. Those individuals are followed by the criminal element in their own communities because they know there's plenty of customers and they start selling drugs and preying on the people in this area. And now you have a major crime syndicate it's uh, selling drugs and keeping people on, on the end, endless spiral of addiction. And then you go to the 2000s, mid 2000s, where we actually, through hard work, sweat, uh, and uh, very, very smart policing and working in a synergetic fashion with other city fam uh, families, uh, we ended up reducing crime in Skid Row 40%. I, people don't believe it, but it's true. From 2005 to 2011, Skid Row was actually a relatively safe place. Uh, wow. But then, 2011, uh, they are advocates and individuals who um, they somehow benefit from Skid Row uh, remaining uh, at Dante's Inferno. You know, if you there's a saying, if you take the shoes off the baby, you can't get new shoes for the baby. And that's their philosophy. These groups, the homeless industrial complex, they absolutely need Skid Row and places like it to stay so they can prostitute the image of poverty and wow. get funding lawsuits uh, that never, ever ever benefit the community, actually exacerbate things that makes it work. And they know this is true, but they don't care as long as their name is out there and they can continue to exist. So where we are now as a result of that is Skid Row is worse than what it was when I first came. And uh, if I may be allowed to expound on what it looked like when I first got there, if that's okay, a Absolutely. Uh, and, and when you say when, worse, it's worse, uh, seems across every domain, right? Violence, drug addiction, mental health across yeah. the board. Overdose. Yeah, absolutely. When I first came to Skid Row, um, I couldn't believe what I saw. I heard about Skid Row. I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was going to be a bunch of poor guys shaking for change. Uh, that was my idea of what Skid Row was. And I get there my first day and I drive in and I see the beautiful picturesque LA skyline, which is the West Coast uh, symbol of America's economic might and power. I said, this can't be that bad. Can't be that bad. <laughs> I get off on 6th Street and I'm right in the heart of the symbol of America's economic 
uh, my power. All right, the basin, and I'm seeing people in business suits, some cute girls in business suits, uh, drinking coffee, smoking a cigarette, de-stressing. And I say, what are they talking about? This is this is this is downtown. What are they talking about? But you know how you get to some places that are really bad. There's usually about a mile and a half stretch of territory. They kind of warned you first. It's like get ready, you're entering the hill. <laughs> <laughs> on this day, there was absolutely no warning. As soon as I crossed a street called Spring Street, which is a street that separates the historic core from the actual Skid Row, it was like I tripped and fell into Mad Max Thunderdome, Waterworld, every natural disaster you could think of. And it was heartbreaking for me to see uh, trash piled up to your knees, tents uh, rocking from people having sex on the sidewalk and women being human traffic, uh, uh, tents on fire, trash on fire. Uh, and uh, one of the saddest things I saw was uh, mentally ill individuals ambling down the street, not knowing where they were in a hospital gown, which is called patient dumping, with a medical wristband on their, uh, on their arm. And uh, I couldn't believe what I was driving into. And, uh, and the saddest part for me, uh, being an African-American male, was about 80% of the people that I saw looked like me. And I want to educate the public as to why that is, because one of the number one questions I get asked on college campuses and other agencies, why are so many African-Americans just getting rolling? Once again, we have to point to the crack epidemic, where uh, America catches a cold, uh, 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 people of color in low-income supportive communities, they catch the flu. And that's why you see more of that influx of African-Americans. Americans. Anyway, uh, and I wanted to leave. I wanted to get the hell out of there. But fast forward to 2005, we cleaned it up. And now due to these lawsuits, uh, changes in laws like AB 109, Assembly Bill 109, which uh, basically uh, took uh, people out of the parole system and put them on the backs of the counties. Okay, and the counties were already overwhelmed with individuals. They promised resources for these guys, but the resources never came. And if they were there, they were flimsy at best. So they ended up on the back of the county. They couldn't handle them. So they gave them flimsy uh, ankle bracelets and released them into the streets. They cut them off. And many of these individuals had to check in at a kiosk. They didn't even have to see a supervisor, but a kiosk doesn't know that you have 30 ounces of Coke in your pocket wow. or that you stabbed a woman four blocks away. I mean, see that common sense just left our state a long time ago. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. then comes Prop 47, where they reduced uh, serious crime to non-serious crimes. And uh, and then it comes this evil step called his cousin, which I couldn't believe the voters were fooled into, where they turn certain violent crimes into non-violent crimes, things that you and I know are violent. That's, and sooner you talk about it, but but now they're non-violent, which gave a lever to release thousands of inmates into the streets. And of course, many of these individuals uh, were homeless or they burned their bridges so they ended up in Skid Row. And to add to that was an inj two injunctions that tied the hands of law enforcement's uh, ability to in forced quality of life laws. We were accused of harassing people because they were homeless and that was absolutely false. Uh, but we knew the stats. We knew that in 2005, uh, uh, 93 human beings died in Skid Row from non-homicidal deaths. Uh, and 18 of those were found dead in the streets, beautiful people like animals. Uh, we knew that uh, in 2002, in Central Division, by division, 4.5 miles of territory, uh, and Skid Row's not the only area, it's just the most polarizing issue. Uh, you had uh, 54 homicides that year in, 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 in a 4.5 mile radius, but 75% of all those homicides occurred in a 50 block uh, radius called Skid Row. That's how violent Skid Row was. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of people die. So let's fast forward to what we did. 2005 to 2011, we reduced crime 40%, reduced death. We only had 63 people die instead of 93 uh, uh, wow. to non-homicidal. And as far as murders, uh, 54 versus six and only three murders in Skid Row. And now where we are, we can't, we can't do anything about the tents. 
Uh, we can't uh, uh, stop the 24-hour encampment. And as a result, here's what we have. Human trafficking is at an all-time high. Women getting sexually assaulted in Skid Row. It's a nightmare for them. We're finding Tech 9s, AK-47, shotguns, uh, knives, swords, kilos of cocaine, methamphetamine, and now fentanyl is just killing everybody out there. I've never seen wow. so many death reports come across my desk. So because of this progressive, and I'm not left or right, I want to make that clear. So I'm not trying to bash it, but we have to be honest about where this is coming from. This is coming from the progressive left. Because of these new policies based on uh, uh, the far, far left, uh, we are unable to fix this. And then throw on top of that mental mental health. We all know what happened with mental illness in the 70s. You shut down all the asylums. And I agree to agree they were they were inhumane. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You fix the bathwater so you can help the baby, right? Right. <laughs> so, a lot of yeah, a lot of individuals ended up in the loving arms of family members, but a lot of individuals ended up getting dumped or sent to Skid Row or wandering in the Skid Row because the Skid Row is the only place that would feed or clothe them. And as a result, I would say about 65 to maybe 70% of the people there struggle with some form of mental illness or somewhere or they're on the spectrum. Mix that in with dual diagnosis and drug addiction and uh, now you have a party. So that's where we're at with Skid Row. It's a very, very dangerous place right now. And it's tragic. So Dion, Dion I, I'd like to pick up on, on something you mentioned this a minute ago about the tents. Um, we have the same problem here in San Diego, there's all these tent cities along the sidewalks that go on for blocks. And, and there's been a lot of money that's, that's been made available to create shelters for the homeless. And every once in a while, there'll, there'll be a police operation where they try to come in and clean out the tents and clean up the streets there. But they can't, they can't get them to the shelter. They won't, they refuse to go to the shelter. So, um, what do you do about that? Well, first, we have to recognize the root cause. And one of the phrases I hate over the last two years is, let's go find the root cause. Well, the root causes our detractors are stating are absolutely false. The reason why most individuals won't go to a shelter, and you understand that many of these homeless are coached by advocates to say, oh, we don't like the shelters because of abuse. We don't like the shelters because we're going to be uh, victims of theft and things like that. But they're coached by the advocates to say that. The real reason why it's very hard to uh, shelter a lot of individuals out there are for several reasons, but one is addiction. Uh, two thirds of the individuals you see on the street who have been there since Bill Clinton was in office was uh, is because of drugs and throwing a little mental illness. Now, of course, there's that third that's there because they lost their job. Uh, but I always ask people when I talk to people about this issue, if you lost your job today and you ended up losing your apartment or house, would your first inclination be to go set up a cardboard condo in one of the most dangerous places in the United States of America? And every single one of them, from a politician to an activist to our detractors, they say, heck no, I'd go set up, I'd go stay at a friend's house, or when that ran out, I'll stay in my car, or if that ran out, I go beat down the doors in a shelter. Most of the people who are in the shelters are people who have lost their job, domestic violence, and they're just trying to look for a safe place until they get back on their feet. But for the individuals who refuse to go, they don't want to go because of the rules. You can't be, you can't bring your crack into the shelters. Right. You can't bring your alcohol. You can't bring your guns and your weapons as a result. And also there are rules there. So they'd rather stay on the streets for a twisted sense of freedom where I can pretty much do whatever I want with no accountability. And that's why many won't turn to the shelter. And me personally, they shouldn't be given a choice. If there are shelter beds available, then that should allow law enforcement officers to 
enforce those quality of life issues if there are safe sleep options, if there are safe sleep options. Uh, but that's been taken away as well. So now we have to send advocate after advocate to warn, to warn, to warn, to offer services over and over and over again to get out of 500 people, two people into a shelter, you know, and then by the time you shelter or house those two, they're replaced by 10 more uh, because they heard that, hey, San Diego or Skid Row, this is the place where you can go and anything goes, no one can mess with you. So it's quite a conundrum, uh, but that's the reality of it. And the public has to understand that some people need a push, you know, a, a loving push. And yes, law enforcement is an important factor. And I'm not saying uh, put somebody in jail for the rest of their life for being in a tent, but offer them mandatory services. We had a program called SOS, which is called Streets of Service that was highly effective. Uh, and from 2005 to 2000, oh, I think it was 2009. And what it was, was if we recognize that if we arrested you on a minor charge, you didn't kill anybody, but we recognize that addiction, mental health, chronic homelessness is what drove you to commit your crime. Yeah, we would arrest you and bring you to the station, but we'd have a caseworker at the station waiting for you. And you had a choice, sign up for this 21 day program or you go to jail and go through the whole process. Once they signed it uh, and they agreed to it, if they completed the program in 21 days, we dropped the charges as if it never existed. And that was the beauty of it. Now, of wow. course, everybody didn't take us up on it. In 2009, 2,225 2, individuals were signed up for the program. Now, only about 30% completed it, but 30% is really good. You know, who got right. reunited with their families, graduated from programs, they got housed and got help because they had one choice streets and jail go to services and it actually was very effective so we used enforcement to actually save people's lives and help people so what's what we're seeing here and and let me know if if you see the same thing we see certain groups of homeless abandoning the the tent cities and and moving out under the highways um, in 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 the brush, off the sides of the highways, um, they're, they're at cold nights. They're starting campfires that spread into um, wildfires, um, and just about every week, you you listen to the morning news, and there's been a pedestrian crossing the major highway three o'clock in the morning, hit and killed, and nine times out of ten, it's a homeless person. Um, mm -hmm. are you seeing the same, the same dynamic happening in, in, in your area? Absolutely. It's pretty much the same everywhere you go. I said in 2007, as Skid Row goes, so does the rest of the country. And we're seeing that as encampments start to grow, you'll notice the criminal element coming in to supervise the operation because there's no doubt there's going to be drugs, there's going to be needles, there's going to be drug dealers. And what happens is for the new face that comes and tries to set up, and, and in a camp area, thinking it's safe, they're going to get assaulted, they're going to get raped, or they're going to get taxed to live on the sidewalk, or they're going to be forced to sell drugs. And those individuals are like, I didn't sign up for this. So what they do is as those encampments start to metastasize, those encampments become too dangerous to live in, even if you're homeless. So what happens wow. is you'll have the homeless retract to other places like bridges, your communities, uh, stores, malls, wherever, and set up encampments there. And once again, those encampments are going to metastasize because drug dealers know where they are. They're going to find them. And they know that many of them are addicts, so they're going to find them and you're going to see the same thing over and over again until your entire county uh, slowly becomes a skid row. And, uh, and that's the whole methodology of it. And it seems to be this, you know, dog chasing the tail type thing. It's just one it's a one cycle, never ending cycle. Here. 
So what what are the answers? What what, what do we do well, about that? For me, uh, where I work, the, the answer is, I don't like to pretend like I have all the answers, but I do have suggestions based on being there 24 years. And uh, one of my things is, number one, is decentralization. We should never centralize services for the homeless anywhere uh, for the reasons I stated before, because it's just going to attract a predatory element that's going to exacerbate crime and everything else and quality of life in your community. So when I say decentralized, some people get alarmed. So oh, you want to tear down Skid Row? No, I don't want to see one program, not one of the 108 programs in Skid Row designed to help people. I don't want to see not one closed down. I want to see another one open up when you have 88 cities in L.A. County. And uh, only three cities have stepped up to try to help the homeless in some way, shape or form or put their own finger in the dam to slow homelessness. Uh, uh, so what I'm and a lot of people go, well, what about uh, I don't want drugs in my community. Nimbium, NIMBYism is also one of our number one nemesis, people who believe in not in my backyard. And I don't demonize those people. I actually understand. I don't want you taking a whole bunch of guys with needles in their arms and crack pipes in their mouth and dumping them in my community and shelter. I get that. So instead of that, why don't we uh, specialize services, okay? Create a shelter for families. There are homeless families at Skid Row that have no business being there. They're well wow. cared for in the shelter, but once outside, their kids are exposed to horrible things. So create shelters. If you're in one of those cities in LA County, open up your city to build a family shelter for uh, mothers, fathers, and their children, okay? I promise you, your area will not turn into a drug den. Why don't we find uh, build specialized services for the elderly? There are a lot of elderly people in Skid Row who aren't drug addicts. They're just there because all they have to live on is their social security, and we can take them in where they have a fighting chance in a shelter somewhere else other than Skid Row. And also, uh, for individuals who have handicaps, we have many individuals with physical uh, impairments and they can't defend themselves in the street and they are routinely victimized by people out there. We need some, so think outside the box. Uh, I get it. You want to be selective. You should be selective about who you take in. Uh, to, and here's what it does in places like Skid Row. It, it takes some of the congestion and the relief. It, it relieves the area of the congestion, right? So the people that are there, they end up with a better environment, but also the individuals that choose to leave and go to those places will also have a better environment conducive to change. And you will see miracles happen in those people's lives. And I know it for a fact because there's a project in Skid Row, uh, there's a uh, mission in Skid Row called the Union Rescue Mission. Incredible, incredible service provider. And they are, their goal is to put themselves out of business and they're serious. They created a satellite center in a, a city called uh, Tilmar. And of course, the people showed up with tiki torches and pitchforks saying, we don't want those homeless crack addicts here. But no, mm. it was a family center to house families. And I had to go and testify on their behalf and help them get that through. Uh, I made a lot of enemies that day, <laughs> but it got passed through. And now that, that location has been up for about 12 years, not one incident. Not one incident because they were selective about the kind of people they were trying to help. These weren't, uh, you know, uh, drug addicts. These were families. So that's one solution. Second solution, because the biggest challenge we face in places like Skid Run, I'm sure in San Diego as well, is mental illness. The system's current solution to helping somebody uh, with mental illness is to sprinkle pills on them in the name of civil liberties, check on them, and in six hours, release them on a 72-hour hold in six hours. Wow. That's inhumane. You wouldn't let a, uh, a person who got a brain surgery off the operating table in, in three hours or less. You wouldn't let somebody who had just had a triple uh, bypass off the operating table, but you would let a mentally ill person who's in severe crisis and even worse, dual diagnosis, into the streets, and for obvious reasons, because they're overcrowded. And, uh, and like I said, and then they get back out in the streets and you repeat the cycle 
over and over and over again. So what I suggest with uh, with uh, the mentally, all the money they're wasting on trying to build housing, like in LA, we had a, a program called the Triple H that was voted on by the voters. 1.2 billion, pay attention folks, $1.2 billion that the voters wow. were swindled, swindled in the voting for. I think if I'm not mistaken, about 800 to 900 million of that, uh, uh, 900 million of that money has already been spent and they haven't even scratched the surface. As a matter of fact, one low-income supportive housing unit can cost anywhere from $700 to $830,000 to build to shelter one person. So they're not being built fast enough. The only people making wow. money are bureaucrats, uh, bureaucrats, politicians, and uh, construction companies who are just raking people over the coals with fees and, of course, regulations and things of that nature. So, so what we need to do is take some of that money a large chunk of that money and reinvest it into the mental health system and change the system to this. Uh, instead of a 72 hour hold, it should be six weeks. And here's why. A, we don't want to take away someone's liberties and, 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 and involuntarily house them against their will for the rest of their life. We know that that's a problem <clears throat> for civil liberties groups. But why six weeks? Sober them up. Sober them up, A. Yep. And it takes six weeks, six to eight weeks for their medication to actually stabilize them or for them to benefit from the right. therapeutic attributes of their medication. So why don't we stabilize them first before releasing them? And here's the most important part. This is where I don't think it should be a left or right issue. This is where these partisan battles should stop. Let's get together, both left and the right, and let's shorten and streamline the process of conservatorship. So while you're detoxing them from drugs, while you're stabilizing them, you're getting to know them and you're finding out who their loved ones are and streamlining mm. the process of conservatorships to get them home or get at least get somebody to take care of them and make sure that their needs are met, even if they get out and don't find a home. And even if they get out and don't find a home, what you'll find is because they have a routine of taking their medications, they are staying out of the cycle a little longer. doesn't mean they won't be back in, but they'll be out of the cycle a little bit longer because they've already been you know, programmed kind of to take their medication uh, until that wears off. So that's uh, the second and the third, and I'll, I don't know how to keep running my mouth, but the third is let the police do their damn job. <laughs> we have to stop politicizing public safety. The homeless, as much as I love and care about them, like nobody's business, nobody understands how passionate I am about helping the homeless. I also know that the homeless can't be above the law. You know, you can't, I mean, we can make some concessions. I get it. What we did was from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m., we allowed them to pitch a tent and sleep at night because we understood that there wasn't a lot of shelter space. But at 6 a.m., you had to pack up your stuff and do something better with your life than destroy yourself wow. on the sidewalk. And this was agreed uh, to by civil liberties groups. And we all felt that that was a more humane approach. All the way around, it was a more humane approach than just leaving people on the sidewalk. And it actually had a tremendous impact on a lot of those individuals. And as a result of having to pack up and get up, they had no choice but to go and try to get help or go home eventually. And we were able to separate the wolves from the sheep. So the sheep in Skid Row actually started to get better. And it's just common sense solutions that I've, uh, I've thought about over 23 years that I know, I don't think would work. I know would work if we stop politicizing public safety and homelessness. And the sad, the sad part about this is that this is outstanding. This is innovative. That this is game changing. That heretofore, all we hear is people wanting a silver bullet solution to homelessness, yeah. and they treat all homeless people the same. What you're saying is, the people that are homeless have different reasons that make them homeless, and we've got to Absolutely. divide them into these different pigeonholes and get so we can focus on solving the, the the problem 
that each of these Absolutely. groups have. And there's no universal fix. There's no exactly. the problem with a lot of these policies. They're sweeping broad brush policies and within them are point systems and things of that nature that actually convolute or stymie progress when, you know, every individual is suffering from a different thing. And if you recognize that and pinpoint that, you could actually be more effective and also recognize the importance of having law enforcement as a key factor in getting people to services that they need. Yes, we can make some serious change uh, on the issue of homelessness across the state. Have you about Go ahead. Have Go you ahead. testified before before the policymakers on, with your great ideas? Uh, has anybody heard them? Have you written about them? Who, who needs to Who needs to hear these? Who needs to listen to you? Uh, I have uh, done my best. I've taken out commissioners. I've taken out uh, city councilmen, uh, people running for office. I know uh, there was a guy running for governor named Cox uh, a while back ago. I, I was late and honored that he chose to come and take a walk and see the issue. City uh, city attorneys, I've done that. Only thing missing, I, one of these days, I would love to have two hours of the time of Congress or at the assembly and just really uh, show them something they can't deny. You know, that is my dream. If I could just get out there and talk in D.C. or somewhere and let people know what's going on, that would be my dream. But uh, and that's a not a heavy now, lift. That can't be a heavy no, lift. No. To, to no. get you to and do that's that hard right now. Nobody wants to hear from a police officer because everybody's bought into the narrative that law enforcement was the problem. Well, we've proved now that law enforcement has been defunded, resources taken away, that law enforcement wasn't the problem, okay? The problem is horrible political leaders who put their finger in the air and they don't, we don't have leaders anymore. We have followers in leadership positions uh, almost across the board and they don't want to hear the truth. Uh, they only want to hear uh, what their, uh, the tasty lies that advocates tell them uh, and, and it's failing on a massive level. So I hope well, they, one day they, I can they, really- They're catering to their base so they stay in power. So they're, We've made we've made the the job of the representative. We've made it a career, and we've allowed yeah. people to sit there for years. And after a while, they don't want another job. They can't get another job. Perhaps they want to be their job it. is being a rep. So they're gonna they're gonna do whatever they need to do. Unfortunately, to right. to make the base that voted them in continue to vote them in. And, and yeah. sometimes it's not in the best interest of the democratic process. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, uh, that's one of my prayers is one day I can stand in front of D.C. and they can not see a police officer giving a police perspective, but see a human being who cares about the homeless community and the mentally ill like nobody's business, uh, who happens to be a police officer. I just wanna share what I've seen in 24 years so that we don't ever revisit this again and we can solve this thing from a truth-based foundation, not an idealistic or political one. Because we have ideas out there, wild ideas like harm reduction. They said harm reduction was the answer. Harm reduction has failed out of the gate out of the gate. You can't expect to pull somebody off the street with a needle in their arm and say, if we house them, everything's great. We've done our job. It doesn't work like that. And I'm going to tell you why. You're looking at a police officer who housed 150 homeless people in 10 years. Now that's nothing. That's nothing to brag about. I mean, that's nothing. That's 150 people out of the 2000 that were there. But why only 150? Because the rest, they knew that if you go to officer Joseph, you can go, you can get a leg up, but wow. they weren't ready. They needed a push. They needed a push. And these are things that the general public needs to understand. Uh, let me tell you something. One of the most heartbreaking things that I deal with is uh, when families call me, 
you know, because a lot of these individuals you see on the street, they aren't really homeless. They have a place to right. go. It's just due to mm. their addiction and things of that nature. Uh, they're in the streets and they can't go home because they're not clean. Uh, I'll have on average five times out of the week, I'll get a call. This is on social media. Hey, this is my son. This is my daughter. This is my nephew, my uncle, my grandfather. Can you help me find them? I think they're in state row. And many times I was able to reunite families. And a saddest story I ever uh, saw was uh, regarding that was a, a mother and an aunt who flew in from Baltimore, Maryland to find their son because his father passed away and his father actually left him a property in Baltimore. Wow. And uh, they were looking for about a week and someone's uh, people in Skid Row said, go see Officer Joseph. I mean, literally, Skid Row tells people to go see me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sure enough, uh, I was able to find him. And when I reunited and I'm thinking, OK, by the grace of God, they're going to talk. He's going to go home. He, has, he, he can smoke crack in Baltimore if he wants, but he has his own house to do it in. He declined. And uh, the mother and aunt left uh, disheartened. And two weeks later, he was stabbed. Uh, he he wow. nearly passed away. But it's addiction and the access to it. And uh, it, that's keeping many people from getting their lives back. And as long as you you basically decriminalize everything, you are basically enabling people to continue to destroy themselves. And that's not political. That's just a butt naked truth. That's my dad used to say. You, you know, Dion, uh, one of my jobs at ATF, I, w- I was the, the head of uh, a congressional affairs for ATF. They spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. So I still got some some contacts in, in that in that area. And I'm going to make sure that they they see this uh, this uh, a podcast um, for the very reason that we just spoke of. You need people yeah, need to hear. Need two, I just need two hours of their time, and I guarantee well, you. I'll well, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to make sure that the people I know get this. But be, before we run out of time, tell us the story of of your training officer taking you through Skid Row years ago when you first started out. Um, I guess he was a a, a, a Caucasian police officer. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, I love telling this story because I'm tired of the narrative that white police officers can't police in black communities. Right. That is the most racist thing I've ever heard. It's not the, you're, the color of your skin, it's what's in your heart. And this is a story about that. And it's actually Venice Beach. And he worked in a black community in Venice Beach. And this was a department legend, a legend. He arrested 2,300 people in Oakwood, a black community. And you would think, oh my God, these people are going to hate me as soon as I show up. I'm going to get called a helpful calm, a sambo, and all this stuff. So we're driving through the community. I couldn't believe that people were yelling out from the rooftops, yelling from their windows. Hey, Snowden. His name was Bill Snowden. Hey, Snow, God bless you, man. Hey, thanks for helping my cousin. Hey, man, God bless you, man. I'm doing real well. I'm, I'm sitting here like, oh, my God, is this white guy so corrupt that people are just afraid of him? And they say, hello. You know, it just blew my mind. And he saw the look <laughs> on my face. And he, uh, I, pull, I pull over. He says, you look like you got something on your mind, son. I said, yeah. You arrested half these people here. Why do they like you? I don't understand it. And he said this. He said, Dion, we work in a very dangerous community. The people here know why we're here, and they know we're needed. What they want is whether we're responding to take a report, counseling them, or taking them to jail. What these people want is for us to treat them with decency and respect. And young man, as long as you're working with me, you will treat everyone we contact with dignity and respect. And I love that because that affirmed who I was anyway. I realized I didn't have to be an Adam Henry, and you guys know what Adam Henry means, to be a cop. I can be a decent person and police these streets. And he reaffirmed that in my life. And 
years later, I would sometimes email him police reports and newsletter, uh, news articles about it. Said, this, is be- this is because of you. You created this monster, brother. And uh, and I, now I'm the guy uh, walking the streets, getting caught, getting hugs and kisses. It, I took it to a whole nother level. Nobody kissed and hugged, noted. But I'm getting kissed and hugged and people give me gifts and, you know, I'm like, God, thank you. You know, you know, and it's been a blessing. And that man uh, literally shaped my career. Uh, he gave me a good foundation to build my police house on. And uh, I love telling that story so we can stop uh, uh, looking at policing through racial lenses. Uh, it's not your skin color. It's what's in your heart. And that's the, that's what matters. I'm not from Skid Row. I've never been homeless. Came close a couple of times. but <laughs> I've never been homeless. But those people see me as family because I see them. I recognize that many of them are there, not because they're bad people, some because of trauma, some because of a very stupid decision that ruined our life, but they're still loved by God. They're still worthy of protection. And it's not my job to judge them. It's my job to serve them no matter who they are. Wow. Outstanding. And and when when it's time for tough love, they get it, right? Oh yeah. Oh no. They they call me Robocop for a reason. (laughs) I have many. I had many names uh, in my 24-year career. The first five years, uh, of course, it was Uncle Tom, Sambo, House Negro, New Booty, all that stuff like that, right? And uh, then it, it became funny names when people started to respect me. It's like Officer Bobblehead, Officer Tight Shirt, Male Stripper. And then <laughs> when I really knew my job <laughs> and, <I> was, <laughs> and started going after drug dealers and becoming effective at going after drug dealers, the name was RoboCop because uh, you couldn't escape from me. If I didn't get you today, I was going to find you. And I had all this equipment. I walked like a robot. And then later, when I became a senior lead officer and people saw who I was, not just what I did, I purposely did that because I wanted to know that one of the people to know that I'm doing this because I care about you, not because I want to hurt you. The names became Angel, Officer God Daddy. And my favorite right now is Ram Bro. They call me Ram Bro. This one lady said, You know why we call you Ram Bro? I was like, No, that's a new one. <laughs> She said, hey, if somebody mess with us, you're a one-man army. You, we know you're coming for us. And I just like that just melts in my heart. But uh, you know what my favorite name they call me is when they call me Dion. That means wow. I become like family. And that's the importance of what I call grassroots community policing. This is where I like to go across the country and talk to law enforcement agencies about really policing from a grassroots level and thinking outside the box as it relates to relationship building. And I have a blast sharing that with police officers across this country. Wow. Yeah. Hey, Dion, can I, uh, you, earlier you made the reference to uh, sheeps and wool. Can we spend a little time on the wool? It, it's hard for me to get my arms around the organized crime piece to Skid Row. Because in, in my, uh, not be, being naive, I'm thinking, well, how does organized crime survive? Like, where's the money aspect of it? So can you speak to how that all functions in Skid Row? and and how, okay. I mean, and what you said is if it happens in Skid Row, it's happening across uh, the country as well. Absolutely. Well, people have to understand, like I said, the the Skid Row is what's called a recovery zone. And it's a recovery zone because it has 108 programs to help people who can't afford to go to Betty Ford, Malibu passages and do yoga and have horses running around. They have to mm-hmm. go get better in what's easily compared to Dante's Inferno. And well, like I said. These folks come from adjoining cities, uh, you know, from Carson, Long Beach, Watts, South LA, and places like that, because they have no place else to go. And the criminal element has been following them from these locations for years because it's a high customer base. So here's how it works. Uh, You have these uh, gangs, it was crime syndicate in Skid Row. 
called uh, the DTGs, the Downtown Gangsters. I made them official in 2012 with the help of a gang officer, but they took them out of the uh, the gang system because they felt that it being their secondary gang would somehow uh, taint uh, their primary gang status. But yes, the DTGs exist. They're called the Downtown Gangsters, and they're a mixture of Bloods and Crips, who some of them are bitter rivals, but once they come into Skid Row, there's a gentleman's agreement not to rob and kill each other because there's plenty of customers. So they'll mm. come around and they'll divvy up territory in the parks and take over the parks that were designed for the homeless. And they divvy up territory and they say, okay, Grape Street, you can have these blocks. Okay, Bounty Hunters, you can have this over here. And then they all meet up at the park and count their money and then go back home. They go back home. And these are the individuals that keep the folks on an endless spiral of addiction. Now, uh, a lot of uh, these places, this is why I stress decentralization, uh, you have 60 low-income supportive housing hotels uh, in Skid Row uh, that are operated by two great corporations. But the problem is because the level of criminality is so high and some of these agencies believe in harm reduction, they take somebody straight off the street and get them housed. But the problem is a lot of these individuals still owe drug debts, loan shark debts mm. to the DTGs. So when the DTGs find out that you got housing, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to get into the hotel and say, hey, congratulations on your housing, but guess what? You owe me money. I'm going to kick yeah. you out of your room for 12 for twelve hours or a week while we chop up this cocaine. Or you have to sell my product uh, while you're in recovery <laughs> and sell my product. And this is why a lot of these individuals who are in these harm reduction hotels struggle with getting clean. Yes, they have a roof over their head, but a lot of them, when they talk to me, they say, Dion, there's no difference between living in a low-income supportive hotel to living on the damn streets. There's literally no difference. We're living in hell. And wow. of course, law enforcement, we've, our hands have been tied. We don't have the resources to deal with it. And of course, we have a crazy district attorney who's not filing any cases. So it's, it's, it's hell on earth for these individuals who are even housed. And human trafficking goes on in the hotels. Uh, extortion goes on in the hotels. And when I tell you, right now, I'm investigating a case as we speak. I'm, I'm trying to find an elderly man who uh, a murder suspect who I guess he beat his case literally pulls him and kicks him out of his own hotel room. And this elderly man is living in the street with housing because this uh, uh, ex murder suspect is, has now taken over his room. Uh, let's talk about uh, the lure. People have to understand the lure of Skid Row. And I told you uh, from 1999 to 2001, I worked undercover as a vice investigator. And one of my uh, uniforms was to put on a tank top a beanie, some jailhouse blue pants, some flip-flops, some white socks, and place a jailhouse wristband on. And I would, uh, we, our, job, our job that day was to mob down Skid Row and go get gangsters who were gambling dope money in the middle of San Julian Street. And that was one of my favorite gigs, you know. So here I am. I'm in character. Thank God for a speech and drama class, Long Beach Poly. Thank you, Miss Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm from Long Beach, too, so I, I got a little bit of hoodity. So uh, I uh, saw this group of guys gambling. And uh, I give the violation, and sure enough, our units come around, and I got to stay in character. So I'm running. I'm what we call ass and elbows, just running. I got to stay in character, running from the police, right? As I'm running, a drug dealer calls me and says, hey, cuz, slow down, cuz. Why, why are you running so fast? Let me holler at you, man. And I was like, I got to go. I ain't trying to get arrested. He goes, come here, cuz. Let me holler at you. I was like, what's up, man? He says, damn, you just get out of jail? I'm like, yeah, what you think? He says, okay, cool. He says, man, you big, man. God dang, you strong as hell. Can you fight? And I'm like. Yeah, I'm like, please, what's up? He goes, you need some work? I'm like, hell yeah, I need some work. I'm broke. And he goes, okay, you see that little Asian chick right there? You see that old brother right there? See young buck right there? They all owe me money. I'll pay you $50 a day to bust their head to the white beam until I get my money. I was like, what? Thanks, boss. Wow. He gave me some pounds, ran away, right? Not over yet. 
we get to the station, my boss says, damn, we got three hours left. Uh, we still got some work to do. And I said, what are we going to do? He said, well, there's two, these two sex workers out in Skid Row. Uh, they're full-blown AIDS, and they're uh, engaged in sex, uh, sex work on Skid Row. We got to get them off the street. I kept the same uniform on, and my boss was like, I know you're not going to wear that. I was like, shoot, I'm chocolate thunder. Watch me work, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so I, go, I go mobbing down the street, 7th and Stanford, and I see one of the, our target. And she comes up to me and says, hey, Big Daddy, uh, dang, you just got out? I'm like, yeah, yeah. She says, you need a date? I'm like, heck yeah, I need a date. I've been in the glass house for six months. Like, What's up, girl? Read the menu. So as she's reading the menu, she says to me, she starts to cry. I'm like, what are you crying for, boo? I'm trying to get this love in. And she goes, uh, look, my man just got sent up for 10 years. I can tell. I can look in your eyes and tell you're a good person. Look, I have nobody in these streets. Listen, I live at the Ford Hotel. You can come stay with me for free. You can have my vagina for free. I'll make all the money and give it to you. I'll give it to you as long as you protect me. And I was like, damn, in a span of three hours, I had a job, a girlfriend, a place to stay, and a tax-free income. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's what people need to understand about Skid Row. If you allow places like Skid Row to exist, they never get better unless you let police do their job. You have to decentralize and you have to be serious. If you call someplace a recovery zone, you better take it very serious. They better be sanctuary. There should be harsh penalties for anyone selling drugs or human trafficking in Skid Row. Because to me, that's tantamount to murdering somebody slowly. And that's, that, that just bothers me so much that we don't take it seriously, that seriously. Well, hey, uh, Dion, you're a man of faith. Tell us about how that's helped you do your job here. If it wasn't for my upbringing and my parents putting, uh, I'm not ashamed to say it, Jesus in my heart uh, and, and adopting his ways. Of course, I can't police in the name of Jesus Christ, but I believe the way I police and serve people pleases my father in heaven. And uh, I couldn't have survived the tragedies that I've seen over the past 24 years mentally, uh, if it wasn't for me falling back on off every morning before I get out of bed, I say a prayer. I say, God, I'm going to see some horrible things today. Lord, can you make me strong as a lion where I'm, where I'm weak, uh, where I would cower? Because cops are human beings. We have fears. Please give me the courage of a honey badger. I love honey badgers. <laughs> I say, <"Where> I, <laughs> and, now, and now that I'm in my late 40s, I say, Lord, where I'm broken. Heal me in times of distress because I'm not the young 23 year old beast I used to be. And, uh, and when I, I, I and I just ask God to let me be a vessel of love. I want to show people of Skid Row love from a place that they've been indoctrinated not to expect or told not to expect it from. Because I get that from my parents watching them uh, show a godly love to 41 foster children who came from abused uh, backgrounds, neglected, sexually abused, physically abused, malnourished. And these kids didn't expect love from an adult. So my parents gave them that unconditional love and treated them just like they treated us. And it was wonderful to see my parents heal those children, uh, whether, it be, whether it was two weeks or two years. And my dad you know, who came from a hard life in the Jim Crow South and had to commit crime to survive, him reaching back at his construction company and hiring individuals who were ex-convicts. My dad never told me I was digging a ditch next to a convicted murderer. My dad never told me I was wiring a house next to a drug dealer. But my dad said, if these men want, that's the key key word, they want another chance, I'm going to give it to them. And he never called his employees his employees. He always introduced them as his friends. You will never hear me call somebody Skid Row a bum, a hobo, 
uh, crackhead. You won't hear that come out of my mouth because I love them so much. I know they're loved by God and he wouldn't want me treating them that way. But just like God, sometimes God has to throw his weight around to get you where you need to be. And I, and I try to use the law to create an environment conducive to change so that the influence of the wonderful service providers there can be stronger than that of the criminal element. And yes, deep, deep down inside, it's my faith that drives me and keeps me from never, ever giving up on these people. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's so hard. But if it wasn't for God and my family just riding for me every day and, and being a rock for me when I get home, I, I'd probably be a best case right now. Wow. Thank you. Hey, when we started, you said you had a funny story you were going to tell it about Skid Row. Do you remember saying that? I just did <laughs> the parole the parole <laughs> story. <laughs> when, oh, okay. When I got out of yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I had to find a way to work that in there. I think it's so important for people to understand that. But uh, there are many, many funny stories. But here's the coolest one: I have a 72 year old fiance in Skid Row. Uh, uh, <laughs> she thinks I'm her fiance, <laughs> wow. and I met her 15 15 years ago. And she would speak to me in Spanish, and she refused to talk me to me in English. And she kept saying in Spanish, "You're going to learn Spanish. You're going to learn Spanish." So I'm like, "Okay, you can teach me." I still never. Got Got it. And she would come up to me and grab me by the arm and we walk arm in arm up and down Skid Row and she let everybody know that I was her fiance and I was like, I didn't understand what the heck she was saying. So one day uh, they had this Google translator and I pulled it out and I let her talk to see what she was talking about when she was talking to me. Because all I wrote before I was like, C, C, C. I didn't know what I was saying, C to. <laughs> <laughs> so when I put the translator on, I read it and she said to me, I want to drink you like a Mountain Dew. You are my bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, shoot, I'm not no damn soda. <laughs> and, wow. But she literally thought, and it was funny. I remember one time my wife dropped me off at work and she discovered I was actually married. And uh, she was walking down the street in front of the station and my wife pulls up and lets me out of the car and she sees my wife kiss me and she drops her cane and just fell <sighs> on the ground. Oh, man. So for weeks, I was like, forgive me, forgive me, more, forgive me. But these are these are the relationships that I love to establish down in Skid Row. And it, it, it just when I retire, I have some wonderful stories to tell my grandkids and so many wonderful memories that memories that that kind of help smooth over the bad and the horrors, horrors and traumas that I've seen over the years. So, you know, God bless the people of Skid Row. They're really wonderful people. You know, Dion, I, I can't thank you enough for this uh, conversation. Uh, we usually ask a question about relentless follow-up, but I think in the last hour, you've explained the value of following up with the community. Uh, I know Pete's got a, a question for you. I'm going to turn it to him here. So, so Dion, we, we mentioned that this is the 24th uh, RF Factor uh, podcast that we're doing. And I would say, for, for at least 90% of the ones that I've been involved with, I would ask the guests this very same question. And I can't wait to ask you this question because I, I can't wait to hear the answer. It, it, Machiavelli, in his book, The Prince, posed the question. Um, you may have heard it before. And he asked, is it better to be loved or feared? And I'd like to hear your answer to that question. Ooh, my answer to that is both. I want those who are trying to get their lives better and get their lives right and just get off the endless spiral of addiction and reunite with their loved ones and get their lives back. I want them to know that I love them and I want them to love me because I want them to know that when I act, when I act, it's because I'm doing it for you, not to you. And yes, I want the justice system to back me so that the criminal element that's preying on these beautiful people can fear not me per se, 
but the law. Because if you mess with these people, these beautiful people that I serve, every time you do, you're going to have a 270 pound legal problem problem on your hand. And I'm coming for you. And uh, so it's a combination of both. I don't want to be fear per se, but I want the support of the justice system to put fear in the hearts of the criminal element that there are consequences for these actions. There are consequences for raping women. Uh, uh, Two thirds of the uh, uh, 40% of the population of Skid Row is made up of women. Two thirds of them have been victims of sexual assault more than twice. How can we say we are pro woman? How can we say that we're pro helping homeless women, but we're okay with maintaining an environment that keeps these women in constant danger, and we don't have the backing of the justice system to put fear in the heart of sexual predators who will prey on them? So yeah, I want both. I want both. I want to show love from a place that people don't expect it, and I want to strike fear in the hearts of criminals who refuse to stop hurting people who are on the uh, uh, spectrum of homelessness. If Machiavelli was here today, he'd give you an A plus plus. For that answer. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's so, you, Ray. Yeah. Dion, this is this is hard to close because I think Pete and I can speak to you for about another hour. But in the uh in the final minutes here, uh tell us where people can find you. Tell us about that book you wrote. Tell us about the, the things that you're doing. And and I'm gonna say it now and, and I, I know when we when we break, I'm gonna say it again, but I'm really looking forward to keeping an eye on you in the future and see the neat things that you continue to do. Well, you can reach me at my website at www.deonjoseph.org. Uh, check that out if you want to book me for to come speak. Uh, you're a law enforcement agency. If you're an advocacy group, if you're a church, uh, I can come from the education tip, and I could also come from the uh, inspirational tip as well. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, OFCR Dion Joseph or my officer Dion Joseph Facebook fan page uh, on Facebook. And I also have uh, Instagram, but you don't want to see pictures of me in a jacuzzi. You can forget that one. <laughs> but, but, but also have my book, uh, Stepping Across the go. Line, uh, Volume 1. Uh, take a close look at it. That's my big bald head butt right there. And uh, it is a story chronicling, and it's Volume 1, chronicling my first 10 years in Skid Row where I basically – I had to struggle with being a black man and a police officer. And finally, I shed that when I realized that the only thing mattered was my heart and uh, took my upbringing with me to help uh, understand what was happening in Skid Row and learn. Volume two, that's, I probably have to write that when I retire so I don't get fired, but uh, that's going to be the more controversial one where people understand what's really happening in Skid Row. And a lot of people aren't going to be happy with what I have to say. But right now, this book is just showing my growth as a young officer in Skid Row and understanding the community and why I ended up staying instead of leaving uh, many times when I thought about it. But yeah, it's a really good book. I'm no Tony Morrison. I admit that, I, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm from a, I'm from, a, from a unified school district. Right. But still, I just I, I did the, gave it I gave it my all. And what's in here is the absolute truth. If you read it with open mind, these are true stories that uh, I think you'll be uh, it'll really open your eyes to what's happening down there. Can people get that on Amazon, for example? Where can people get the book? Yes, you can get it on Amazon or you can order it from my website, www.deonjoseph.org. You can go to the store and we'll make sure you get a copy. And uh, I, I promise you, just read it with an open mind. I have no politics. I'm, I'm a centrist. I'm not a, a Democrat or Republican. I'm a right here in the middle because from the middle, we can see things objectively where we can solve uh, issues. So please know that's where I'm coming from. And, and, and Dion, we'll make sure we uh, put it in the show notes as well. So thank you for that. Thank a you. powerful message you you've delivered today. I can't thank you enough, right, Pete? Wow. Oh, you know what? When I came on the job, I was an old timer. Told me, "Look, kid, 
This whole job is about common sense and good judgment. If you have yeah, common yeah. sense and good judgment, you'll be successful. And I think that you epitomize that, uh, Dion. Thank you so much. I, 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 I appreciate that. I love your solutions. You, this, this tactic of looking at the homeless in, in cells of, of why they're homeless and, and dealing with the problems that brought them there. And I think that's outstanding. And I'm telling you, I'm going to make sure that all the contacts I have that need to hear this, hear this, this podcast. I'll die a happy man if you can make that happen. Well, we don't want you to die, but we want to make you a happy man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I thank you guys. Thank you for your service to the community uh, and and, and all that you do and and, and allowing me to have a voice on your podcast. uh, I I truly appreciate it. Dion, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Hey, gentlemen, you guys have an outstanding night. Stay safe. Good night, fellas. Take care. God bless.